we're moving forward. Uh, we've gotten an influx of volunteers, but we could still use some more. So those here or watching online, uh, if you haven't filled out a, a form to volunteer for VBS, we would encourage you to do that. Um, especially, I think at this point, like we're looking for like crew leaders who they take the kids around and uh, there's no prep involved in that. You just got to make sure nobody runs away. That's the main responsibility that you have the same amount of kids at the end of the night as you had at the beginning of the night. Uh, so uh, please, we, we could use your help. Um, I think this week, maybe next week, we're going to have specified like donations that we could use as well. So that's another way to help out. Uh, help. Uh, so just be keep your eyes peeled for that. And then you might have seen as you came in, uh, the, uh, each door there are buckets there. Uh, we are collecting uh, this for the month of July for Kids Alley, which is an organization that uh, they're actually their center is in Pensalkin. They minister to kids in Camden. Uh, they have after school programs and Saturday programs. But every fall they put together backpacks um, with brand new supplies for their kids. And so we are collecting those supplies. So on the uh, bin itself is the list of supplies that they are looking to collect. And then out on these bulletin boards in the hallway, uh, we have a Kids Alley one, and the list is posted there as well. So the bins will be out there all month, so uh, be a great way to support that uh, organization, that ministry, and then to help kids um, who otherwise would probably have to go without uh, important school materials to be able to start off the school year with everything that they need. So we are, uh, we're in Ezra, Nehemiah, and um, just a, a quick review tonight because the notes are growing. I don't know if you've noticed, but we're at four pages of notes this week. There are notes in the back if you didn't grab them. Uh, we're at four pages of notes. I have seven in front of me, so who knows if we're leaving tonight or not. But uh, <laughs> yes, it's a sleepover. The chairs are comfy. There's plenty of room to space out. Uh, <clears throat> but so in, in the way of review, we are in Ezra Nehemiah uh, for several reasons. Uh, I, I wanted to do an Old Testament book because I think we often overlook the Old Testament. But we're told by Jesus that uh, all of the Old Testament points to him. We're told by Paul that it's uh, the Old Testament is able to make us wise towards salvation. Um, and so we don't want to overlook it. We want to dive in and see what we can learn. Um, and then as I've gotten into Ezra and Nehemiah over, really over the last couple of years, um, it's very interesting. Um, I think it's very interesting. And uh, there's a lot of like nuance in there. And, and really, this is true of Ezra and Nehemiah, and we'll see more of it tonight. We saw some last week. Um, but it's true of the whole Old Testament that the, the writers of the Old Testament are, uh, this, I'm stealing this analogy from a guy, Tim Mackey, who runs the Bible Project, but he calls them ninjas because they're very subtle, but they're always up to something, and if you're not paying attention, you'll miss it completely. But if you watch them at work, it's beautiful. And I think that's the Old Testament in a nutshell. Uh, and that's Ezra and Nehemiah. There, there's a lot that's going on that is easily missed. Um, and I know for me, as I've gone to some of the Old Testament books and read through them, it's like, I'm just lost. I have no idea what's going on. And so to slow down and to take, uh, you know, we're not going verse by, by verse here, but just to even take a, a close look in overview form, 
uh, I think, enriches it for us a little bit. So, um, we last week we looked at the first of three movements that kind of make up one section, the return and rebuild. So the exile, those who have been exiled out of uh, Judah and Israel are allowed to start making their return. And uh, we saw that um, they, they came and the first things that they did were what? What were the first things that exiles did when they returned? Those who were here last week, testing your uh, recall. Yes, they fellowshiped, right? We, we read that they gathered together as one. That all, we read it was like 42,000 people, uh, but they came together as one. That community was important to them. And then uh, their fellowship turned to worship. They rebuilt the altar. They made sacrifices. Then they laid the foundations to the temple. They worshiped um, over that. Uh, and then we were introduced to the enemies of Judah, uh, those who were going to bring opposition. And I wanted to pause here for a second because Anne asked last week why it says the enemies of Judah and not the enemies of Israel. And I think I did a good job of, I'm patting myself on the back here. I, I did a good job of handling a question I was not prepared for. Uh, but I wanted to go back to it for a couple reasons. I think because I wasn't prepared for it, my thought process was just get to some sort of good answer and then let's move on. Uh, but I want to pause and say it was a really good question for a couple of reasons. One main reason, which is that as we talk about, as I bring up that the authors of the uh, Old Testament, especially the New Testament too, but the Old Testament, they're ninjas and they're always up to something. It means nothing is unintentional. That everything is there for a reason. And if you are reading and you're like, that's a weird phrasing. Why does it say that? That's a good question to ask and to pause and to, to reflect on. And if, if our goal is to become the Psalm 1 person who meditates in the law and who delights in it, we need to ask those questions. Why does it say this this way? Or even if you're reading and you make a connection back to uh, an older story, a story that happened previously in the Old Testament, that's probably intentional. That was there for a reason. And so if you read something that reminds you of the Exodus or reminds you of Abraham, pause. And why? Why are the authors making those connections? So uh, the author made a specific choice to say that these people, the people of the land, were the enemies of Judah, not the enemies of Israel. And there are times throughout Ezra and Nehemiah where the people of God are referred to as Israel, not just Judah. Um, but I think in, I looked a little bit deeper into it, and I think I, again, I'm going to just pat myself one more time on the back. Uh, I do think I basically got the, the points as to why, um, but Jerusalem, where they have returned to, was the capital of the southern kingdom when, the, uh, when Israel split into the northern and southern kingdom. Jerusalem was the capital of the southern kingdom, and the southern kingdom was called Judah. And um, so that's where they're returning to. And then as we read in, I think it's chapter 1, um, it, God stirred in the hearts of the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin to return to Jerusalem. So I think that's why they are, at least in part, and there might be more that I'm missing or uncovering, that 
Um, but that's why it says the enemies of Judah, because of where their location is, because of who was there, uh, and who we're talking about at that point in the story. I think even as we get into this second section tonight, as are 7 to 10, we're talking more northern, like northern and southern kingdom exiles are kind of intermingled. But at that point, we have the enemies of Judah. It is the southern kingdom uh, that we're mostly talking about. But all of that to say that more than the answer is important. I think the question was a good one to ask. So thank you, Anne. Uh, and as we read whatever we're reading, but specifically Ezra and Nehemiah for us here in this study, those questions are good questions to ask, to dig in. Why does it say it this way? Why doesn't it say this? Um, this reminds me of that. Is, is that actually what they're doing? Probably. Uh, so dig into that. I actually, I saw uh, a, a tweet from a pastor. Uh, Colin Adams is his name. And he said, the Bible isn't like any other book because you never finish, you never finish reading it. You never finish reading it because the Bible is never done with you. God always has more to say, to remind you of, to challenge, and to comfort you. And I thought that was powerful and is why questions like, why does it say the enemies of Judah and not Israel, are good ones. Because we can always go back and we can see little things that we didn't see before. Because the Bible, we don't finish reading the Bible. Uh, this year, as a church, we're just reading a book a month. But in years past, we've put out Bible reading plans. So you read the Bible in a whole year. But we do that every year. Why? Didn't we do that last year? Aren't we done? Like, we've, we finished it. Um, someone, I'll, they will remain nameless for their son's sake. But at the new family's lunch, so that narrows it down a little bit. They were telling me that their son, who goes to Christian school, uh, when they are asked to come to church on Sunday, they're like, Mom, I already know all that stuff. We talk about it in school. So he's done. He's learned it all. But for the rest of us, we never finish. Even if we read the Bible cover to cover every year, there's always something new to unearth, to, to dig in. So um, keep asking questions as we go into Scripture. Um, so, yes, we looked at that first movement where, um, so they're rebuilding. They lay the foundation for the temple. And there's a lot of good things that are happening we saw the importance of community and fellowship, the importance of worship to a community of God followers. Um, but then there was a couple of things that like leave us wondering, like this, these were good things, but was it all good? Like, are we, are we okay? Because um, when the temple was laid, it says that the, some of the older priests and elders, um, many shouted with joy, but then some wept. And we, there was some... Uh, question as to why that was. Was it just weeping out of like overwhelmed with emotion that like we're back in our land and we're building the temple? Or as I read it personally, it felt contrasted that there was joy and, and weeping contrasted, not weeping with joy, but it was kind of comparison induced that they saw the foundation of this new temple and it just wasn't the same as the old one. Um, and so are we happy about this? Are we not happy about this? Um, and then those enemies of Judah, they, um, they don't really go away. They stick around and they make it difficult for the, uh, for the, exile, the returning exiles to rebuild their temple, to rebuild their city. And we question 
did they make the right choice of rejecting their offer to help? Because that's how they became the enemies of Judah. They said, let us rebuild this temple with you. And their offer was rejected. And that's when they were like, all right, you don't want our help? We're going to make this hard on you. And so did they make the right choice of keeping themselves separate from the people around them? Or was this an opportunity to invite these people into the family of God? And we're left in that tension. We don't, we can only kind of come to our own conclusions about that. The uh, Bible isn't explicit, I don't think, one way or the other. And we have a similar uh, arc that we're going to run into this time. In Ezra chapter 7 through 10, it follows a similar pattern to the first movement. God moves through a king to allow the Israelites to return. Uh, this time it's Artaxerxes, um, who, and that is like a, we're probably 50 to 60 years after King Cyrus. So Ezra 1 to 6, King Cyrus is in charge. He sends back guys who weren't, I guess, important enough to get their names as a book of the Bible. But uh, Zerubbabel and uh, Joshua or Jeshua, um, they go back and they led that first movement. And then Artaxerxes is the king in the second movement, so we're probably 50, 60 years later, and he commissions Ezra to go back. Um, in Ezra um, 7, 25 to 26, I want to read these uh, because this kind of sets up why he's going back. What We know the first time they went back, they laid the foundation for the temple. So what are we looking to rebuild or to do this time? And we see that in Ezra chapter 7, verses 25 and 26. So this is a letter from that uh, Artaxerxes, the decree Artaxerxes is sending Ezra with. It says, And you, Ezra, in accordance with the wisdom of your God, which you possess, appoint magistrates and judges to administer justice to all the people of trans-Euphrates, all who know the laws of your God, and you are to teach any who do not know them. Whoever does not obey the law of your God and the law of the king must surely be punished by death, banishment, confiscation of property, or imprisonment. So why is Ezra sent back? What's he supposed to do? Enforce the law. And who, which law? The law of God, right? The Torah. And so uh, we see uh, the Persians had a different way of ruling their, uh, their subjugated than the Babylonians before them, which was kind of to allow them to have, stick to their own way, have your own religion, just like keep it quiet. And so we have a pagan king who's telling Ezra, go and enforce God's law and go teach it. If the people there don't know it, teach it to them. Um, so this was kind of their way of keeping the peace rather than through intimidation or making them like the Persians. It was have your own thing, but you ultimately answer to us. We see that the punishment for not obeying God's law, they must be punished by death, banishment, confiscation of property or imprisonment. So I guess Artaxerxes didn't know God's law either because God's law has its own punishments already in it. Uh, but he's, kind of, he's saying, teach them the law. If they don't want to follow it, they're out of it. Uh, so he sent back for teaching the law of God, the Bible. Like He is rebuilding their community through the Torah. 
through teaching of God's word. So we're not, there's not a physical build in this movement, but the rebuilding is, we know that close to the identity of the Jews was the establishment of law and Torah. And so uh, as we go through Ezra 7 through 10, I'm going to kind of just uh, overarch the story and then we'll kind of go piece through piece. So uh, he goes back to establish the law. As he does this, he discovers that the Israelites have been engaging in mixed marriages. Um, that the, the people of the land and the people of the land we talked about last week, it's kind of, it's a lot of people. It's Jews who never left when they were exiled. They were kept there to maintain the lands. It's now like the Samaritans. It's Jews who have uh, intermingled with or intermarried with uh, the Assyrians and have had offspring. It's uh, Assyrians who have remained. It's Persians. Like the people of the land are just everybody at, the, at this point. They are the nations. Um, and so the Jews have, inner, the Israelites have been uh, engaging in mixed marriage. And Ezra um, weeps over this because he sees this as a, the downfall of his people. That knowing their story, um, and later in Nehemiah, they say explicitly, wasn't it Solomon's marriage to foreign women that was the downfall of our kingdom? And here we are doing this again. We need to cut this out. And so Ezra uh, repents to God. There's this huge long, there's this long prayer in uh, Ezra chapter 9 where he repents on behalf of his people for their sin. And then the community kind of comes together. It's not Ezra's idea initially, but he is the one who enacts it. The solution to the problem of, inner, uh, of these mixed marriages is divorce. That all these men who have been in mixed marriages, they should divorce their wives and they should send off the wives and children to somewhere else. That's the solution to the problem. And the people, there are three names, I think, of people who are like, I think this is a bad idea. But everyone else is like, yep, that's the solution. That's what we're going to do. And then Ezra chapter 10 is the list of all the people who married foreign, foreign women and then divorced them. And that's where the book of Ezra ends. And I'm left with a lot of questions. <laughs> uh, was this actually, this was the best course of action? This was the solution, the only solution to the problem was to send these women and children away? And so we'll look uh, a little bit deeper as to why this happened. I think we are supposed to feel conflicted about it, much like we did at the end of the first section, that there are good things that are happening here. There's a recommitment to Torah, to God's law, that's being established here. But then that results in divorce, which we know God is not a fan of. And not just divorce, but sending away these women and children. And there's no mention of, uh, maybe it happened, maybe it didn't. But there's no mention of like supplying these women and children with food or money or something to help just be gone. And we start over. And it's like, how did we get there? So we'll look to see what lessons we can learn. Uh, I don't think the lesson is going to be to divorce and get rid of your wife and kids. But, uh, so we saw what is happening in each of these three movements is that the return is about returning to the land, but it's about redefining identity as well. That the, after being uh, subjected as slaves for 50 to 70 years, 
the Israelites weren't able to practice their religion the way that they normally would. Their normal routines weren't, um, weren't available to them. And so they lose their identity as a people. And being a people who started, when did the Israelites become a people? With who? With Abraham. With Abraham, right? Yeah, Moses, we kind of get a restart out of Egypt, right? But God calls Abraham and says, I will make you a great nation. And the call of Abraham starts with, "There, go to a land that I will show you. So the identity of the Israelite people is very much tied to the land. Uh, you know, in our interconnected world where we can fly anywhere within a couple of hours, we are less tied to our land, but we still get it. Like, as Americans, we, if you're overseas for a while, you want to be back home. Uh, there's something about being home. Things are familiar. But multiply that by, like, a thousand. The identity of Israelites are tied to the land. So they're going back to redefine their identity. Again, in a way of review, Ezra 1 to 6, that happens by being a community, being together. But then by putting back in the practices of worship. So they reinstitute their their rhythms of the festivals that they celebrate each year uh, and being able to worship God, being able to sacrifice to God again. And here they do that by bringing in the law. But the author, uh, authors of Ezra and Nehemiah want to make these connections to the past. They want to remind you of who they are. Last week we saw a bunch of ways in which um, there are connections to Exodus. And if that was dialed up to like eight in the first six chapters, we dial up to 11 when it comes to Ezra. Uh, Ezra is very much portrayed as the new Moses. And therefore, he is leading the new Exodus. And this is done in a couple of different ways. Um, in Ezra chapter 7, that's when we are introduced to him. Verses 1 to 5, we see his genealogy. And we skipped chapter 2 because that was a long genealogy. This is a short one, so we're going to power through it, all right? You guys ready? So this is Ezra 7, 1 to 5. It says, after these things, so what are these things? Everything we talked about last week. After these things, during the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, son of Sariah, Sariah the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, the son of Ahitub, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of uh, Merioth, the son of Zerahiah, the son of Uzi, the son of Buki, the son of Abishua, the son of Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra came up from Babylon. So that makes perfect sense to you, right? You guys get now where Ezra comes from, and we're like caught up on his family tree, and it all makes sense. Um, there was probably at least one name in there that sounded familiar, Aaron, the brother of Moses, right? We've been talking about him on Sunday morning. But this, is, this genealogy is a theological statement, not a direct history. It omits probably multiple generations, so it says, Ezra, son of uh, Sarahiah, and he comes up in First Chronicles, and we know that there's about 120 years between Ezra and Sarahiah. So they're, that's not actually 
his dad. They're in the same line, but that's not his direct descendant. So there's something else going on. We're not, we skipped a couple generations. Um, the design is meant to communicate something else. And I think what it's meant to communicate is that Ezra is the new Moses, the new Aaron, and the new and improved version of it. So we have, we start with Ezra, and then there are a list of seven priests. And these seven priests were the high priests after the destruction of the temple. So it goes Ezra, then there's seven priests. And then we have um, Azariah, and he was the first priest in Solomon's temple. So that's kind of in the middle. So we have Ezra, seven priests after the destruction of the temple. Then it goes down to the first priest in Solomon's temple. And then the seven priests before the construction of the temple. And then Aaron, the brother of Moses. So you have this one, seven, one, seven, one structure. And seven, we know, is a, a, a highly symbolic number in scripture. And so to have seven generations after the temple, seven generations before the temple, and then to have the priest in Solomon's temple in the middle of that, and then to make the connection to, not to Levi, not to the Levite tribe, but to Aaron, the brother of Moses, the first high priest, is saying Ezra is important. We like this guy. He's a big deal. Remember Moses? He comes right from Moses. He comes right from Aaron. Remember the role that Aaron played? This is the role that Ezra is going to play. And so his genealogy is not simply, in case you're curious, who this guy's dad was and who his dad's dad was. And so that's not, it's building up this expectation that we saw last week, that this guy is important. This guy matters. To us, it's names that are hard to pronounce. But it meant something. And there's a structure to this genealogy. So again, we're continuing that theme from last week, that this is a new exodus. Now we have a new Moses in Ezra. He's going to lead these people. And what uh, that, uh, one other note on that, that middle priest, uh, Azariah, who was the first priest in Solomon's temple, he has basically the same name as Ezra. It doesn't come across that way in English. But in Ezra, or in Hebrew, Ezra means help or helper. And then Azariah is basically Ezra Yah. Yah being a shortened form of Yahweh. God is helper. And so there's another layer here that the first priest of the temple, now we have a new temple has been constructed, and we have a new priest, and so we're supposed to be excited about this, that this we're going back to our glory days. So that is one way where the authors are trying to reconnect us with the past, with the Exodus. The other is the time of the departure. I'll read Ezra 7, 9. Can someone go to uh, Exodus 12, 1 to 2? All right, we're going to read 7, 9, and trust that someone will be ready to read Exodus 12, 1 to 2 in a minute. Uh, so Ezra 9 says, he, being Ezra, had begun his journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month, and he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month, for the gracious hand of his God was on him. The important part being, he began his journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month. Matt, are you an Exodus? 
uh, 12, 1 to 2, says what? The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Do you have a, a header? Like, what are we reading about there? Passover. The Passover. So, when God institutes the Passover for the first time in Exodus, he tells uh, Moses and Aaron, this is, you have a new calendar now. You've been living in Egypt for 400 years. You're used to that calendar. Scrap it. Get rid of it. The first day of the year, the first day of the first month, will be the Passover for you. So when and what does the Passover represent? Their exodus, right? The Passover happens, and as we talked about last week, the Egyptians are like, here's our stuff. Get out of here. We don't want you here anymore. And they cross through the Red Sea. So now we have Ezra who is leading people back to Jerusalem. And when does he decide to leave? On the first day of the first month. So what is that supposed to trigger in our minds? Passover, the Exodus. It's happening again. God is on the move. He's doing something. And then we have uh, this little nugget. We're going to skip a bunch here. But um, we see that they, the rest of chapter 7 is this letter from King Artaxerxes to Ezra. Uh, chapter 8 is the list, a, a list of people who are going with them. And then uh, in chapter 8, verse 32, we get this little nugget that says, We arrived in Jerusalem where we rested three days. So they get to Jerusalem and they rest for three days, which means very little. But um, several people have noted, you can see in Joshua 3, 2, it's a short verse, but it says that they rested for three days and then they continue on with their journey as Joshua leads the people into the promised land. So there's another little marker here that, okay, the first exodus, we have the timing of the departure being marked up with that. Then Joshua enters the promised land and when he crosses the Jordan, he rests for three days. What does Ezra do when he enters Jerusalem, he rests for three days. So that movement that Joshua made is happening again. God is doing something. And then um, another list of names that I won't make us read through, but backing up to the beginning of um, chapter 8, verses 2 to 14, Ezra uh, chooses families to help lead, to lead the people on this journey. And the leadership structure, verses uh, 2 to 3, the beginning, there are three families that are chosen. Two of them come from the line of the priest, and the third one comes from the line of David. And then after that, so verses 3 through uh, 14, there are 12 families that are mentioned. So we have 3 and 12, 3 and 12. Without even being able to assign them to anything, you might know those numbers, again, are highly symbolic in the Bible, 3 and 12. Here, what I think that they're pointing to is kind of the ideal Israel, which is they always refer to who? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The three patriarchs of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then 12 being the 12 tribes of Jacob. So we have the, the building of this ideal Israel. We have our patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are in our 12 families. And here we have two priestly families and David making up our three, our patriarchal families, and then the 12 tribes being represented. So all just this connecting to the past. Um, and, 
And even the, to highlight just one more, this one is a bonus and is extra. But the first week we looked at the layout of the Hebrew Bible. It's a little bit different than our Old Testament, different order. But in the middle they have their history, Joshua Judges, Samuel Kings. And then the prophets, what are called the prophets, are not what we have as all of the prophets. There are three, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. And then one book of the minor prophets. Anybody want to guess how many minor prophets there are? There are 12. So their Bible is structured in this 3 and 12 as well. There are three major prophets. What we know of as the major prophets, we count five books there. But they have three, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and then the book of 12, 3 and 12. So those numbers come up again. So we are supposed to make these connections. We're supposed to get excited that we are being connected to the past. And God, the way God has moved in his people before, he's going to move again. He's moving now. So why is Ezra going? Again, he's going to reestablish covenant faithfulness. The way that Moses did the first time where, and we know that was a bumpy road, <laughs> that there were ups and downs as Moses started that when he was up on the mountain, Aaron is there making a, helping the people make a golden calf for them to worship. So didn't go great, but we're hoping this one will be better and this new Moses will be better. He's going to reestablish covenant faithfulness. And we see, and I'll just kind of breeze through this. There's a lot of words on your notes. And for those watching online, Hopefully you figured this out already, but the notes are available to you in the comment section or in the, I think the description, they've been posted there so you can check them out. But again, there are just a lot of um, notes being made here to connect uh, Ezra to Moses. He's a, it says in 7 verse 6, he is a skilled scribe in the Torah of Moses. Um, who is trained for the study, the Torah, who is trained for the study, the to study, that's supposed to say, the Torah of Yahweh and its practice to teach it in Israel, statute in accordance. Then we I highlighted a few places where we see the Torah of Moses and the Torah of Yahweh mentioned, um, and even that phrasing statute and ordinance, that goes back to Exodus and to Joshua. So we're supposed to be seeing Ezra as this new Moses, this new Joshua, He's the leader of these people. He's going to lead us really back to the promised land and to the promised era. Um, and then, last thing, and we'll, then we'll get into some, some of the practical aspects of the story. But multiple elements of the story are that, references to key phrases in Jeremiah 31. The beginning of Ezra, we saw in the first week, that, so two weeks ago, Ezra 1.1 says, in the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. So we have these highlights here in Ezra 7, uh, 8, 9, and 10, that connect us to Jeremiah. Uh, the, this phrasing, I gathered them, which we find twice. We find that in Jeremiah. Uh, to be our help from our enemy, we see that in 822. That exact phrasing is used in Jeremiah 31. So we're making not just the connection back to the Exodus and to um, Moses and to Joshua, but to the promise of Jeremiah 31, which is that God would restore Israel, that the Messiah would come from Israel and the nations would gather. So 
if we were Jewish, we're not, but if we were Jewish, we'd be pumped in this moment because this is our Moses, this is our Joshua, maybe this is the guy who's not, probably not the Messiah, but he's going to set the stage for the Messiah, and the Messiah is coming. And so we are excited about this. And just like we saw last time, we see here that the authors or editors of Ezra and Nehemiah, they are going out of their way to make these connections to the past, to the Exodus and to the Messianic prophet, uh, prophets. They're making sure that their people, the, the people involved in the story, but also those reading the story, remember who they are, that they are a Passover people, that God cares about them, God is, has moved on their behalf in the past, and God is going to do that again. And like I said last week, and like we experienced on Sunday, we are a Passover people as well. When we celebrate communion, we're going back to Jesus, but Jesus in, <clears throat> started the act of, or practice of communion on Passover, and he is the Passover lamb. This is the blood of my covenant. It's not the blood of a lamb anymore. It's the blood of the lamb that we remember the Passover by. But it's a reminder, just like communion is for us, these stories are reminders for these people of who they are, where they've come from, what God has done, and therefore, what God is going to do. Now, set the stage. You see the connections. You want me to get back to this weird divorce stuff, right? I know you do. So let's do it. Uh, Ezra establishes the Torah, and then uh, trouble is found. Uh, Ezra 9, 1-2 says this. <clears throat> After these things had been done, the leaders came to me and said, The people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices, like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves, and their sons have mingled, mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. So what is the issue that Ezra is facing? Matt? Was that a... Yes, Matthew. <laughs> well, they, the problem is that they're, they're intermarrying with people of not the same faith. And people of not keeping the same faith meant that they were probably keeping, keeping the other gods uh, as well. So you no longer are true to the one God. Mm -hmm. Yes, we see throughout the Old Testament that God calls himself a jealous God. And so intermarrying, and there was no such thing as an atheist in this day. Everyone was a theist. Um, and so marrying someone of a different ethnicity, because ethnicity and religion were closely tied. They weren't uniform. You could swap and trade and add on. Uh, but if you were marrying someone from a different ethnicity, they probably had a different God. And so you were probably bringing that God in. Many religions didn't have a problem with that. Yahweh, God, had a problem with that. And so this is the problem. Uh, can you think, though, so 
we have seen that this has caused problems before. We know, knowing the story of the Old Testament, we know that this has caused problems. But can you think of any key figures in the Jewish faith who had non-Jewish wives? Solomon. Solomon. David. David. Moses. Moses, right? Moses married uh, Zipporah, who um, was a Midianite. Yeah, Abraham, um, Sarah was his wife, uh, who, I mean, they started the Israelites, so they count. But he slept with Hagar, had a kid with her. She was uh, their Egyptian slave. So we have a mixed bag, because no one, the people, we Mark preached on this a, a few weeks ago, a month ago now or so, uh, the people of Israel had problems with Moses' wife, but she didn't really cause any problems for Moses. Like, he did, she didn't lead him astray. She didn't actually turn anyone away. God never seems to have a problem with the fact that Moses married this foreign woman. Um, but then we mentioned Solomon. This causes him problems. This really leads to the destruction of Israel as a unified kingdom. Um, for Abraham sleeping with Hagar, um, that caused problems that have echoed to our current day. Um, and so that was bad. A few others, though, um, mentioned Moses. Joseph has an Egyptian wife. We, Moses married a Midianite. And then um, on Mother's Day, Mark preached from the book of Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite who married Boaz, who was an Israelite. So Boaz had an Israelite, um, or had a Moabite as a wife in Ruth. And she's actually given high honor. Not only does God not say this is bad, he elevates her that she's the great-grandmother of David. And then when we get to, uh, I'm not sure if it's Matthew or Luke, but one of those two genealogies lists her in the genealogy of Christ. So she, she is actually given an elevated status. So the problem that Ezra is facing, we know can be a problem. But we also know it's not always a problem. That there are times where intermarrying, God doesn't seem to have a problem with it. Where it seems to go well. Um, so let's take a look where these command, this command was given. Um, it's in Exodus. It's in Deuteronomy. Uh, it's mentioned a few times throughout the Torah. But let's go to uh, Exodus 34, verses 11 to 16. So Exodus 34, 11 to 16. And there, um, God says, Obey what I command you today. I will drive out before you the Amorites, Canaanites, Hittites, Parasites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land where you are going, or they will be a snare among you. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles. Do not worship any other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land, for when they prostitute themselves to their gods and sacrifice to them, they will invite you and you will eat their sacrifices. 
And when you choose some of their daughters as wives for your sons, and those daughters prostitute themselves to their gods, they will lead your sons to do the same. Dave, I just want to yeah. mention that I, it made me think about Ruth. Mm. Ruth was a converted yeah. um, Moabite. She didn't worship another god. Right. So she was. She said, your god would be my god. Yeah. To, Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. To nail, nail. So that made a big difference, I think. No, you're exactly right, and I think so. Uh, Mike points out that Ruth converted; that she says to Naomi, "Your God will be my God," and then goes with her. And as far as we know, those other positive examples—Moses' uh, wife and uh, the other positive example I gave was—I don't remember—it's right in front of me. Uh, Joseph, we, as far as we know, they they don't cause any problems in this area. That they are not bringing in other gods with them, and that does <coughs> make the difference. What is, and that's kind of the answer to the question I was going to ask. So the question was going to be, what is the nature of God's concern in these commandments? It's not the race or the ethnicity of the woman you marry, right? He doesn't say, don't marry them because they're dirty people, or they're bad, or they're less than you. Why does he say not to marry them? Yeah, they will bring with them their gods, and then they will bring you into the worship of their gods. So it's not a, an ethnicity thing, it's not a race thing that God is laying down the lines for. He's saying it's a worship thing. It's a, you need to worship me. And we see in those positive examples that when these foreign women are willing to worship Yahweh and Yahweh alone, it goes well for their marriages. <laughs> and it goes well for the Jewish people. But when it doesn't, it goes bad and it goes really bad. So what God is worried about <clears throat> is spiritual adultery. And it's not a ban on all marriages to Gentile women. It's a, a ban on marriage with those who worship other gods. And so again, Joseph, Moses, Boaz, we see they're not condemned by God, that at least in the case of Ruth, they are highlighted and honored because, like you point out, Mike, she said, your God will be my God, and then worshiped Yahweh. So there's, a, I think, a, a key point here. You may have noticed that uh, in verse 2, Ezra says, They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, and have mingled the holy race. Does everybody's Bible say race there, holy race? Or do you have a note? Maybe. So it's a different word. Yes, it says race. Uh, the, so the Hebrew word there is seed. It's the same uh, which we see all the time in the Old Testament. But seed or offspring, uh, really the idea of race is a more modern idea. Ethnicity, like ethnos is the word that is normally used in, like, uh, in the Hebrew scripture when talking about what we would probably consider race. But here it's the word seed that is used. And he, he says we... They are, um, they have mingled the holy race, that we are to be a holy race, he says. But where does that phrase come from? It comes from Exodus 22, 
verse 31, which says, You are to be my holy people. So do not eat the meat of the animal torn by the beast. Throw it to the dogs. You are to be my holy people. When God refers to his people as a holy people, holy and set apart, he, again, the concern is not their race, their ethnicity, their, their lineage, their seed. It's who do they worship. And Ezra is conflating the two. He says they have defiled, they have intermingled, they have messed up the purity of our line. That it becomes, for Ezra, a race thing. And we can, we would be here too long to look at all of this, but uh, on the, what ends up being the third page of your notes, there is a table. Um, and I think Take some time and look at that if you're curious how Ezra gets to this understanding of what it means for his people to, to be pure and to be clean. That Ezra is not, I don't think, and the point of tonight's lesson is not for us to be like, Ezra was a racist. Um, I don't think that is what is happening. I think Ezra is trying to faithfully interpret the Torah, for his current situation. And he's probably gun-shy when it comes to foreign women because he, he, I sit here and I highlight the positive examples, but he's thinking, I'm returning from exile because Solomon screwed up by marrying these Gentile women who led him astray. So I think we can excuse, or at least we can understand where Ezra's coming from. Um, and then that chart or that table kind of highlights some of, I think, what would probably have been Ezra's like deep study on, on this idea of intermarrying. Should we do it? Shouldn't we? What should we do now that the people have intermarried? And clearly, it leads him to some sort of um, feeling like, clearly this is bad. It can't continue on. But what do we do with those who have been married? Um, and it's not flippant. It's not light. We're, as we read this story, it kind of, whatever, it's like a page, we turn it over, and some guy's like, they should all get divorced. And everyone's like, all right, let's do it. I don't think, that's not how it happened. Ezra is skilled in the law. Um, we're going to, later in Nehemiah, in the book of Nehemiah, we're going to see that um, there's a whole day where Ezra just reads the Torah to the people, or seven days, where he just reads the Torah to the people. Uh, Bible scholars actually believe that that happens here. That happens in between chapters 8 and chapters 9 of Ezra. But for sake of story, they have kind of moved that. So Ezra is skilled in the Torah. We know that. He, we read that somewhere earlier, that he is trained in the Torah of Moses, that he was sent for this. You're the one who gets it, who knows it. Go and teach the people. And so his interpretation is that we should do away with these marriages. Now, it's not Ezra who actually proposes that solution. So chapter 9 is uh, Ezra realizing this, realizing that this is not good, that we have intermangled, or intermangled, <laughs> intermingled, uh, 
with these people. He repents to, to God. Uh, if we had more time, we could probably camp out and take some lessons from his prayer, which is in verses uh, 5 through the end of chapter 9. But as far as we know, to this point, Ezra, I mean, he's a hero, right? He's been built up as this new Moses, this new Joshua, this leader of the people, skilled in the Torah of Moses, the Torah of Yahweh. He's done nothing wrong, and yet he is repenting on behalf of his people. And the similar prayer Daniel prays in the book of Daniel. Daniel, also, like a uh, flawless record. We don't have any record of Daniel doing anything wrong. He is head and shoulders, not physically, but spiritually above the, his peers. And yet when he prays on behalf of his people, he says, Lord, we have sinned. He includes himself in that. And I think, I said we weren't going to spend time on this. Here I am spending time on this. But we have lost that corporate identity. Especially when it comes to sin, right? We're coming up on the 4th of July, and when we talk about America, the good stuff, we did it, right? We won World War II, we sent a guy to the moon, we did this. But then when we talk about our sins, not everyone. There are some people who want to only highlight our sins and ignore the good stuff. That's not a good solution either. But neither can we just say, well, I didn't do that. I didn't enslave anyone. I wasn't around for that. We did that. Just the same way we sent someone to the moon. And so, as the people of God, we have to corporately own our sins. Now, I frankly, I care less about my American identity than I do with my identity as a follower of Christ. So, that discussion, we can have it if you want at some point. Maybe it'll be fun. Maybe we'll both hate each other. But... When it comes to the people of God, we have to own our sins. That here at this church, we hold to a traditional sexual ethic. That marriage is between a man and a woman. Does that mean that if a gay couple comes in, that we just have to tell them, well, you're living in sin. This is bad. This is terrible. Get out. No. We have to own that we, as a, the people of God, have sinned against the LGBT people, that we have been, we have made their lives worse, that we have oppressed them, that we have done bad things. And you might be thinking, I haven't, and I hope you haven't, but we have. And so we have to own that. And there are millions of examples that I could give of places where the church, the big C church, has done wrong. And maybe you haven't done that, but we still have to own that, and we still have to repent of that, and we, when we encounter people who have faced that hurt from other Christians, we can't say, yeah, but we're better than that. We have to say, I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry that we did that to you. That is not an accurate reflection of Christ, and I'm sorry that we failed you in that way. That's what Ezra is doing here, and that's the posture that we need to take, and I said I wasn't going to do it, and I did it, and I'm sorry. Uh, so, the solution after this prayer happens in chapter 10. And we see that while Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping, and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men, women, and children, gathered around him. They too wept bitterly. Then Shechaniah, son of Jehiel, one of the descendants of Elam, said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us. But in spite of this, 
There is still hope for Israel. Now, let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their, their children. Their children. Not our children. Their children. In accordance with the counsel of my Lord, being Ezra, and of those who fear the commands of our God. Let it be done according to the law. Rise up. This matter is in your hands. We will support you, so take courage and do it. So Ezra, Ezra rose up and put the leading priests and the Levites and all Israel under oath to do what had been suggested, and they took the oath. So, this guy, real sharp thinker Shechaniah is, is like, there's hope for us still. We can send these women and their children away and recommit ourselves to God. You are the one in charge. This is my idea. If you do it, we're behind you. We'll support you. And Ezra does it. We, uh, down in verse 15, just to highlight, uh, it does say, only Jonathan, son of Asahel, and uh, Jaziah, we'll say, son of Tikvah, supported by Meshulam and Shabbatai, the Levite, opposed this. So, what is that? Four guys who opposed this movement. But everyone else went aboard. Um, what? <laughs> what questions do you have as you read this, hear this story? Do they have an effective social welfare or safety net in this uh, situation? Yeah, what kind, yeah, what kind of social uh, safety net do, do returning exiles have? <laughs> Probably not great, would, would be my imagination. Yes. Yeah, Matt. Well, I guess what hits me most prominently is that it is a, uh, as it's described, it's a broad brushstroke across all the marriages of all the people, all the intermarriage. So there, there's no analysis that, well, you marry a Moabite, but you are keeping God's commandments. Mm -hmm. So you're a good one. You get to, you get to keep her. Uh, it's, you know, all the way down the line. Yeah. And it, it just seems that, you know, they're jumping in with both feet without making you know, some rational decisions. And it's almost as if, well, we have to do this. This is what God wants us to do. Yeah. Yeah, it feels hasty, right? Yeah. Like, or that there could at least be more scrutiny to the marriages themselves, to to Paul's, and to say, "All right, we've we've made all these connections back to Moses. Who was his wife again? Oh, right, foreign woman. How'd that go? It wasn't that bad. All right, maybe there can be exceptions. Let's figure out what some exemptions would be for this. But instead of, hey, this is the idea. If you stop." weeping to God and get up and tell us to do it, we're going to do it. And so Ezra gets up and does it. Yeah, it feels like we could have done a little bit more work to, to help with this. And I guess, and I, I, I might be remembering this incorrectly, but in the Jewish religion, it's the mother that carries the Jewish line. So she would have to in order for the good seed to be continued, you would have to have a Jewish mother. Otherwise, that line is broken. And I'm not sure 
Yeah, I'm learning from my uh, flaws last week. I'm going to say I don't know, uh, but I do know. Like we have Moses, um, who like, I don't think his children were discounted because he had far, far and away. And we have Ruth, right, who is mentioned in the name uh, in the genealogy of of Jesus, uh, who was a, a Jewish woman. Uh, so, okay, and that's a difference. Is that Ruth is mentioned in the genealogy of Christ, but the Jews don't accept Christ as Messiah. But, so therefore, it's but Jesus. yes, that is true. But Jesus was Jewish. Yeah. yeah. Um, any other thoughts, questions, uh, problems, <laughs> discomforts that you have? As you, you read this. Yeah, Dave. Uh, yeah, I can see where these types of scriptures could be used to justify the segregation that we perpetuated. Yeah. Even to the present day, to a certain extent. Yeah. The whole thing with mixed marriages, mm -hmm. to the extent of <laughs> ship everybody out that's not yeah. the right way. So. Yeah. So you can yeah, it's re still recent history in America where mixed marriages were outlawed. Yeah. And, and yeah, you could go to passages like this to justify that. I don't think that's proper uh, biblical interpretation uh, to, to do that. I don't, and I think that is a lesson that we need to learn as we read the Bible. One that we can come back to. And in, in these like big moral evils of like slavery, because the Bible has been used to justify slavery too. And I think for us sitting in this room, we would scoff at that idea. We know that that is ludicrous. But it was done and it was effective for a while. But what we have to, I think the takeaway is that, and it takes wisdom to know when, the Bible is often descriptive, not prescriptive. Just because it describes events that are happening, it is not saying, do these things. Now, sometimes it's saying, do these things. And sometimes it's not. How do we know? Hopefully, sometimes it's obvious. But at other times, it is going to take wisdom. And it's why, going back to Psalm 1, we have to be that Psalm 1 person who meditates on the word of the Lord day and night. Because that cultivates wisdom in us to know, is this descriptive of an event or is this prescriptive? And we have <coughs> good men doing things we shouldn't be doing. Ezra, by all accounts, is a great guy. I don't think this was his best decision that he ever made. And I don't think it's one that we're supposed to be like, all right, we are to do this too. There are so many questions that come to mind. And this is problematic. <clears throat> and there are, like, details we would want to know that the author don't seem to care about. The questions that we would ask, they're not that interested in answering. Some of that is because we, here we are thousands of years later, and we're concerned about things they weren't concerned about. But also, they're telling a story, and it's not covering all the details. There are different things that are going on. So... There's a passage in Malachi 2, 10 to 16, 
Uh, we're not going to, for sake of time, we're not going to read that tonight, but Malachi 2, 10 to 16, if you want to look at that later. But that Malachi is uh, believed to be a contemporary of this time. And in that passage, he talks about uh, these Jewish men who divorced their Jewish wives so that they could marry the people of the land and in exchange for like business contracts, basically. To, because who was doing this, right? We read that um, in verse 2, or verse 1, says the including the priests and the Levites. So, and then at the end of verse 2, it says the leaders and officials have led the way. So it's not just like the people on the bottom of the Jewish totem pole. It's the leaders who are intermarrying. And so they're probably marrying the leaders of the people of the land so that they can strike up business deals, so they can have land agreements. And so now does that make Ezra's decision okay and good and everything's fine? No, but it changes it. It's a mitigating factor, right? That these men had already divorced their Jewish wives to take on these new wives so that they could kind of be in better position in the land. And now this sin has been called out and it's shameful to them. And so the solution that they come to is we have to send these women and children away. Again, is that the only solution possible? No, we probably could have thought of something else. But it does shine a new light on what maybe is happening here. Now, the authors of Ezra, Nehemiah, didn't include that in here. Because... It's a question I want answered, is why are we doing this? But that's not, they're, they're doing something else. They're telling a different story. Um, and again, the, the priests and the Levites, the chief leaders, chiefs and leaders have led in this unfaithfulness. And then in chapter 10, another list of names that we're not going to read. Um, but when it talks about the, whole, the last half of chapter 10, um, it, it names those... Among the descendants of the priests, the following have married foreign women. So this is the list, the descendants of the priests, the list of those who have intermarried and then had divorced. So to our knowledge, it's only the leaders who are directly affected by this. Maybe all of the marriages were um, resulted in divorce and they were sent away. But the only names that are listed are the descendants of the priests, the leaders, the spiritual leaders of the Israelite people. So again, another mitigating factor. Does it make it right? <clears throat> no, not necessarily. Does not the only, again, this didn't have to be the only solution. But when we recognize that, oh, this is directed first and foremost at the leaders of the Israelite people. So if the and the thinking would go that if the leaders are weak, if the leaders, the priests, the spiritual leaders, if they are pulled away from God, then the rest of us don't stand a chance. So, again, a mitigating factor that the authors, they include in there. But I, if I'm trying to make my people look good, I'm going to highlight these mitigating factors, not just kind of like tease them out in there. So the question remains for us, did Ezra make the right decision? And I will say, I'm at least uncomfortable <laughs> with the decision that he made. Um, uh, we talked a little bit about that racial factor that played into it, that 
through Ezra's study of the scripture and understanding of the Torah, that he comes to this see the holy people as more than just those who worship Yahweh. He sees it as the seed, the holy seed of Abraham. That you have to be of the seed of Abraham to, for this to count. And that is a racist idea. And so the, the Old Testament, we can read that the old, this is out of step with the teaching of the Old Testament. And of course, in the New Testament as well, in Acts in the early church, we see that Gentiles very quickly are included into the people of God. And that this is a, a big deal. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul talks about the conflict that he had with Peter for being pre prejudiced towards or against Gentiles and favoring the Jews. And he says, in Christ, there is no Jew or Gentile. So that all are welcome, all are included. So it's obvious, but bears repeating, that if in this decision and in our decision, if race plays a factor, that is out of step with the character of God and with what the people of God are supposed to represent. So in as much as this was a race-based decision, it was the wrong decision because of that. Because God's concern is not don't intermarry these people because they're a different race or a different ethnicity. It's don't intermarry those who are going to pull you away from me. Now, the, what is the Christian parallel? Because I don't think the Christian parallel is race because we see in church that all, or in the New Testament church, that all races, all ethnicities are welcome. That in 2021, to have a problem with interracial marriage, you are in a minority and you're wrong. So, what is the Christian parallel? And I think the closest we get, Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where uh, he talks about being married to a non-believer. What happens if, whether we were both non, not Christians when we got married, and then one becomes a Christian and the other isn't, what are we to do about this? Whatever the reasons, if you find yourself in a mixed and an intermingled marriage that way, what are you supposed to do? And Paul says, in the whole chapter, he kind of is uh, addressing this, but in verses 12 and 13, he says, To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer, and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer, and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. So, I think this is the closest Christian parallel that we get. And Paul says that divorce isn't an option. That it's not, it's, he takes it off the table. That if you're married to a non-believer, and the non-believer is willing to stay married to you, don't divorce them. Just because they are of a different faith. So, we see after Jesus, we are given more information and to work from. Ezra is thinking, I'm, what would Moses do here? And the conclusion, which we can disagree with, but the conclusion he comes to is we have to separate. We have to divorce these people and send the women and the children away. But as people, followers of Jesus, we've added to it. We have Moses, and we should learn from Moses. We have Ezra, we should learn from Ezra. But we have Jesus, and we have Paul, we have... So we have more that we can add on to it. And when we take Jesus into account, what does that do? Paul says, 
that means we have to honor our marriages first and foremost, even if one spouse is not a believer. So, in that sense, again, I think Ezra probably got it wrong here. And there probably was room for what you said, Matt, of a closer inspection of these marriages. What is the, the fruit of the marriage? Are you worshiping Yahweh? Are you willing to? Like, maybe, even if this isn't what you have done in the past, are you willing now to commit yourselves as a couple, as a family unit, to worship just Yahweh? And to make decisions there. But a few just kind of stray points that I, I want to make about this. One is that I think it's important that the community at large comes to this decision. And they execute it in agreement, not through like Ezra's coercion. He doesn't have to twist their arms. He's not. So it was a community decision. So if we are going to say it's the wrong one, we can't blame just Ezra. <laughs> we have to blame all of them. Um, but there is even, I don't know, can we, it's the way we feel about all of these stories. It's like, I guess it's good, you're, you're working together as a community, but do better <laughs> as a community. Um, but Ezra being the leader, spent a lot of time studying Torah, the Torah, seeking to follow it faithfully. And we can uh, disagree with the conclusion he comes to, but we can acknowledge that his methods were sound. And they should be repeated. Not necessarily the results, but the deep study of Torah, of God's word, and then applying it to modern uh, situations. I think that's what the people of God are called to do. To take what we have and then to apply it to many times unprecedented cultural moments. What Ezra was experiencing with mass intermarrying among the Jewish people had not been experienced. It, in isolation, in a few cases, it had been experienced, but this level of intermarrying was a new situation. So what did Ezra do? He didn't flip a coin. It feels flippant to us as we read, but I feel like I can trust that Ezra deeply studied God's word and tried to faithfully apply it to the situation that he was on. He might have done that poorly, but that was his attempt. And I think we're called to do the same thing. Uh, and I think we see this as soon as there are God people. When God calls Abraham and says, go to a land that I will show you. I will make you a father of many nations. We see Abraham trying to apply God's word to his life. So we brought up Hagar earlier. When he sleeps with Hagar, this was a bit wrong. This was a bad decision. He shouldn't have done that. But why did he do it? Sarah's wanted him to do it. I mean, it was Sarah's idea. Yes, yes. It, th this is true. It this was, is an infidelity. <laughs> yeah, it was Sarah's idea. And why was it her idea? What is she doing? I'm willing to give her the benefit of the doubt, just like Abraham. I think they're trying to be faithful. They're trying to make God faithful to his word. What did God say? We would have kids. We know how kids are made. We're trying, and it's not happening. We got to try something else, because God said you would be the father of many nations. It's not going to happen to me. Sleep with Hagar. So they're taking God's word, very limited word, of you will be father of many nations, and trying to figure it out, trying to apply it faithfully. When Abraham lies about his wife and says, she's my sister, he's afraid if they know she's my wife, they'll kill me so they can have her. So he says, she's my sister. Now, is it good to pimp out your wife by saying she's your sister? 
No, this is a bad strategy. It's not what God wants. But why does he do it? Because he's trying to be faithful to God's word. God said, I will be the father of many nations. I have no kids. If I'm dead, I will never have any kids. I need to stay alive. I have to lie to protect myself here. So we see that the people of God, our role is to apply God's word to our current situation. Sometimes it'll be easy one for one. All right, this is easy. We got it. We know what we're supposed to do. But a lot of times it's messy. It's real messy. People are involved. Right here we had women and children who were sent away, most likely with nothing or very little. People are involved in the decisions that we make. And in light of Christ, I think we have to make decisions with love, with compassion, but faithful to God's word. It doesn't mean that we compromise. Jesus, Jesus had the highest sexual ethic of anyone you'll read in here. And who was most attracted to Jesus? Sexual sinners, prostitutes, women who had been married multiple times. They flock to Jesus. Why? Because he was filled with grace and truth. That there was something about the truth as Jesus told it that was not offensive, that was not attacking, but was something better that we were invited to. And as Christians, we, that's what we have to do. We can stand for truth. And if we do it the way Jesus did it, which I freely admit I'm still trying to figure out, but if we do it as Jesus did it, people will be attracted to that. They won't be turned off or feel targeted or attacked, but there will be an invitation to that. So putting aside the conclusion that Ezra made, what he's wrestling with is that the people of God, they're called a holy people. Holy meaning set apart. Sacred. So there's supposed to be a Jewish distinctiveness. There's supposed to be something separate about the Jewish people in the midst of the world that they live in. That's the same challenge that we are called to. That as Christ followers, we're called salt and light. That we have to find ways to be salt and light in the midst of this world. And not be uh, influenced to worship other gods or to chase after other things, but to be salt and light. So we're wrestling with the same thing that Ezra is. It's not a matter of divorce and sending women and children away. But every day, we're faced with how do we be salt and light? How do we be loving? How do we be filled with grace and truth? We're supposed to be winsomely distinct. Uh, we're supposed to be distinct without telling people, go away from us. But in a way that wins them, that pulls them into something that's better. Um, and on that note, we will end. But I have things for you. If that idea of how do we as, how do we wrestle the way that Ezra wrestled, that Abraham wrestled with being uh, distinct from our culture, but in a way that wins our culture to faithfulness in God. That is, that is the question for Christians. It, it is today, and it has been forever. So I have two books up here. I have multiple copies of them. Uh, but this one I just finished reading. It's short. It's like 100 pages. Uh, if you're ambitious, you can read it in a day. Uh, it's called The Secular Creed. And uh, you may have seen, I've actually seen some in Woodbury. Uh, <clears throat> These yard signs that say, in this house, we believe that black lives matter, love is love, 
Gay rights are civil rights, women's rights are human rights, and transgender women are women. Those are the five chapters of this book. Uh, and the author, she, Rebecca McLaughlin, she looks at each of those statements from, and from a biblical perspective. Does this hold water? Where, where, where can we say yes to these things? But where do we have to say no to these things? And how can we do so in a way that is loving? Uh, and I think she handles each of these with care um, and does what I think we saw, we weren't supposed to see, but we saw Ezra do in chapter 9, that she owns where we have failed at this before. That we have let down historically as uh, Christians in America, we have let down black people, we have let down uh, those who identify as LGBT, we have oppressed women, like we have failed. And so before we can tell the world where they're wrong, we have to say, yes, you are right, here, here, and here. But that we have to draw the line somewhere. And so she does a really good job of walking, I think, that fine line. And then this book is called Winsome Convic Conviction, Disagreeing Without Dividing the Church. And uh, last month-ish, uh, I had a small group where we went through uh, this book and so I have two copies left, so if you want one, you can have one. This is more like internally. This is how do we engage with the world in a way that is winsome. And this is how do we handle our differences in-house. Because I don't know if you guys noticed, but we disagree on stuff sometimes. Uh, how do we do that well? And I think when we do that well, that is attractive to the world. Uh, it's at least weird and interesting <laughs> to the world that we can have people who very uh, passionately uh, vote Republican and those who very passionately vote Democrat sit in the same pews on a Sunday morning. Where else does that happen? It does. The church is the last place that that, that happens. We are growing more and more segregated. And I think not our church, which is cool, but the church, the American church, is we're hanging on by a thread because um, many studies show that we want to worship with people who are like us. And uh, that's not the New Testament church. That's not what Jesus called us to. This week on Hope Daily, uh, Mark was in John 17, and when Jesus, the night Jesus was arrested, he prays for unity. That we, not that we would believe the same thing, not that we would vote the same way, but that we would be unified. And so that's what we're called to. Uh, these books, I think, help us walk those lines in the secular world and within our church. And that's the line that Ezra tries to walk um, and I don't like his decision, but I'll give him two points for effort. Uh, but that's the struggle that is before us, just like it was him. How do we apply God's word in our unique situation? And when we try to do that, we're going we're gonna to mess up. We're going to get it wrong like Ezra did. And we might even hurt people because of it, like Ezra did. But we have to own that, and then we have to do better the next time. Um, so that's it. We'll be back next week. We'll look at be in. Uh, the book of Nehemiah, and we'll look at, I believe it's the first seven chapters of Nehemiah. Uh, but as we go, how can we uh, be praying for each other? Okay, let's just pray for each other. That, that'll work too. All right, let's pray. Lord, we are uh, grateful that we have an opportunity to come to look at your word, to, to glean from uh, these stories thousands of years ago. Uh, 
And Lord, I, I thank you that we are in a, I would say, more advantageous position because we have more of your revealed word uh, before us. We have uh, the example of Christ before us. We have your spirit in us. Uh, and so as we uh, seek to apply your word to, to the world that we are living in now, would we be sensitive to your spirit? Would we, uh, like we read Jesus was in the book of John, be filled with grace and truth? Uh, each of us are made up differently, and there's a temptation to favor one over the other or uh, to be 100% grace and zero truth or vice versa or some mix of the, of the two. But I pray that we would be full of grace and truth, that as we interact with the world around us, that we wouldn't shy away from telling hard truths, but that we would tell them in a way that lets them know that they are loved, that they, they're safe, that they can come to their Father who wants to embrace them. Lord, would you help us to walk that line, which uh, is difficult. We get it wrong, just like Abraham got it wrong, just like Ezra gets it wrong. We're going to get it wrong, but uh, may we not retreat, when we, may we not isolate, but let us go out into the world and try our best. And when we mess up and when we hurt people, may we own that and may we seek to make that right. Would you guide us in that, make us sensitive to your spirit and uh, to your call, to the people you're calling us to show your love to. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks, everybody.